Jesus was beyond prepared. We talk about Jesus being God and being man. Philippians 2, 6-8 makes it clear that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was 100% human, and he was beyond prepared. His death at the cross was his mission. Jesus says to his disciples, Who do you think that I am? They say, The Christ, which in Jewish terms is a long-anticipated saving figure who would save and redeem and restore Israel to its glory days. But immediately to that rightful declaration of Peter, that right statement, yes, I am the Messiah, what then does Jesus say? Mark 8 tells us that it was then and there directly to the response of the disciples knowing that Jesus is the Messiah. It says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. We are told in Mark 9 that Jesus still teaches them the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Mark 10 again continues as they are coming to Jerusalem for the last time for Passover, just days prior to where our text that we study today in Mark 15 is. Mark 10 tells us, that Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Jesus is beyond prepared. He knows his mission. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's here for. So much so that even in John 18, verse 4, after Jesus does what I call crucifies his will in the garden, though he knew, he fretted and said to God, let this cup pass before me. And once God said no, and Jesus said okay, John 18, 4 tells us that he's approached by Judas and the army coming to get him in the garden. And it says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus is beyond prepared. He has prophesied over and over his betrayal, death, and resurrection. He has prayed about his given mission. He even knows when Judas and the crowd comes. He knows beforehand. I invite you to stand with me then and read these perplexing words today out of the mouth of Jesus. So please stand in honor of hearing our scripture. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word, and it is a great gift all of mankind. Your word 
in Jesus Christ incarnate in your word, in the words we read in scripture. Father, would you overwhelm us today with your truth? Change our hearts. Those of us who have hard hearts against your word, give us soft hearts. Father, would we never be the same? We desperately desire to be more like your son, Jesus. We desperately desire to hear your voice. So I pray that you would move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. Give us the grace and the mercy and the heart to receive your word and do what it says. Whatever that looks like. Because we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have been telling you these last few weeks, and just as I demonstrated, the overwhelming truth that of all the injustice that's happening here, Jesus is the one who's in control of this whole mess. He is the one who has offered himself freely for the beating, and he has been beaten. These past two weeks, I have gone into detail about what flogging is and then what crucifixion is. The physical pain is really unbearable. Beyond that, we also see that he has been abandoned by his friends. Judas, a fellow minister with him, has betrayed him for money. The disciples who all drank and ate with him in that final supper have all left him and fled. The disciple he had handpicked to be a leader among equals has denied him three times. The Sanhedrin over him, basically of the authority of the Jewish establishment, in which Jesus was a rabbi or a teacher in, has plotted his own death. And in their own minds, from a human perspective, Perspective, they have been the instigators to where he is at now. And he has been given into the hands of people who for a living are trained to mercilessly, shamefully, and humiliatingly destroy people in all senses of the word. So Jesus is, by this point, really a chunk of meat, an unrecognizable and bloodied mess of a man, likely with puddles below his cross of blood and waste, bones sticking out of his body. To look upon him, for those Romans would have been to look upon any other chunk of meat they would have abused beyond recognition. For them it would be just another day, sadly. Sure, this man claimed to be an insurrectionist, and how many of them do we deal with in a year? Well, okay, he's got a following, and some think him to be someone, but, but oh well. Just another day. I want to bring this home for you. I remember a Tuesday for me. I was sleeping downstairs at my parents' house in my bedroom. My old alarm clock went off. It was this horrible little alarm clock. One of those old plastic toy-themed ones. The theme was Looney Tunes, and so there's the Tasmanian devil. He would grumble and yell, wake up. Then the familiar voice of Bugs Bunny would say, okay, okay, doc, keep your shirt on. And I hit that annoying alarm clock, wishing I had a sledgehammer, telling me it was 7.10 or 7.15 in the morning. Just like any other morning for school, it got me up. I didn't live too far from school. I rolled out of bed. Since I was a boy, I just put my clothes on. I could have gone right then if I wanted to, to school. But I slumbered up the stairs for breakfast. 
After breakfast would likely mean I would pack my backpack and just walk three blocks to school, uphill in the snow. No, just kidding. Just three blocks to school. Get there by eight in the morning. When I got upstairs, though, it was different. My dad, who worked in Clarkson at the time, yes, he was gone, but my mom usually had no television on, or if she did, it was usually country music, but this day there was the odd background noise of TV reporters. And my mom was either on the phone, or I, she wasn't there. I don't remember. My oldest sister was in college. My oldest brother had already moved out of the house. My brother Aaron was likely getting ready for school. I walked into the living room, and I saw two large towers on the TV, smoking away. I don't know if the second plane hit, maybe not yet, but I bring all this up because you know what it's like when it's another day that becomes a special day unexpectedly. You more than likely remember where you were September 11th, 2001. You, you remember when the fire took off and you started putting in your head certain hours and days from August 2015 and what they were like. You remember the day when you heard your friend died the day when your loved one passed away. For these soldiers, they've done their usual. They've walked, humiliated, and, and murdered a man. They nail his hands and feet into the post like they've nailed many men and women into a post. They've raised him up on a cross, all of this by nine in the morning. They've played their games. They've cast lots for his clothing in the company of the high priest and others passing insults at Jesus. And when the sixth hour had come, that is noon, six hours from sunup, what happened? There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is 3 p.m. This is supernatural. It cannot be explained by science. Some of you were in southern Idaho for the solar eclipse. Did the eclipse happen for three hours? Would you say that there was darkness across the land? And even on a very stormy, rainy day, what kind of day, the kind of day that many of you would happen right now with lots and lots of rain and no storm, would you call that, even call that overwhelming darkness? The point of what's happening here, the point that God is making, the point that Mark is making, interconnected with the following verse, which we will get into, but consider right now that Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Exodus 10, we are told of a ninth and tenth plague in Egypt before Moses and the Israelites leave. The ninth plague is a plague of darkness for not three hours, but three days. Next is the tenth plague, which is the Passover, the death of the firstborn. Every person in Egypt and in the Israelite camp, if they do not listen to the commands of the Lord, would lose their firstborn. Firstborn son, firstborn daughters, firstborn cattle even, unless what? unless a spotless lamb's blood was smeared across the doorposts. Jesus fulfills the Passover, being the firstborn death, paying the penalty of disobedience. But Jesus is also the blood and the door for those who accept him and obey his commands to be saved. Besides Exodus 10, though, there are several judgments in the Old Testament that refer to darkness across the land. I've, I've listed them in your outlines, and I would double-dog dare you to read the one in Amos, chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. What is interesting to me, though, is what Jesus also has been saying in his ministry. We're going to back out of this verse, and I'm going to 
turn you over to Matthew. We get these phrases I'm about to mention from Matthew. And Matthew records, firstly, in Matthew chapter 8, the story of a Roman centurion who approaches Jesus in Capernaum. And, and this centurion says that he has a servant at his home suffering and paralyzed. And when Jesus says that he'll go to the house and heal the centurion's servant, the centurion then responds humbly, I'm not worthy to have you to come to my home. But rather, your word is enough to heal him, and I know it. And some of you perhaps remember the centurion kind of gives this example that, that he has servants who do his bidding, and so likewise Jesus has power to do his bidding. And Jesus is just amazed by this show of faith that the centurion, without knowing Jesus personally, or perhaps maybe not too familiar with who the Messiah would be, seems to have an awful lot of trust in the power and the work of Jesus. And so Jesus declares in Matthew 8, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, there is no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interesting claim. Jesus says, this Gentile gets me. He, he understands me. He knows me. He trusts me more than many Jews trust me. And so while many Gentiles from the east and west are going to be at the feast in heaven, reclining at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there will be sons of the kingdom, right? Israelite children. All people, I don't mean literally children, but Israelite children will be thrown where? Into outer darkness, which is away from the light, away from the presence of God, where weeping and gnashing of teeth is at. Interesting. Talking about feasts, the feast where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is at, Matthew tells us about a parable of a wedding feast that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 22. What does Jesus say? He says the kingdom of heaven is like a big feast, where lots of food is prepared, and so the king of this feast sends his servants out to collect those who have been invited, and what happens? Those invited have excuses. So some say they have to work. Some even treat the servants of the king shamefully and murder them. So the king angrily says, forget the ones, forget the guys that I've invited. I'm inviting anybody else who will accept. And he sends out those. Many guests do come. But what happens in Matthew 22, verses 11 through 14? But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there, a man who had, there, there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. We could... Dissect this forever and, and talk about the wedding, what the wedding garment is. I believe it is the mark of a true Christian who puts their faith in Jesus' righteousness and not their own. There are many people who say that they are Christians but say so believing, and some don't even realize this maybe, but they believe in their own works and they believe that Jesus just kind of makes up for what they don't have. 
My point for referring to this in this text, though, in this sermon, is that even self-professed believers, who should know better, (laughs) are being thrown into where? Into outer darkness. Still again, in Matthew chapter 25, we are told of another parable about servants entrusted with talents. What happens? A man going on a journey entrusts three servants, talents. Five talents are given to one servant. Two talents are given to another servant, and still one talent is given to the last servant. You know the story. The first two invest their talents. They make more. While the last servant, not wanting to lose what he has, just buries it, hoping that the master would be pleased to receive what he had been entrusted to in the first place. Was the master pleased? Verses 26 through 30 in Matthew 25, his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can interpret this a few ways, but notice the description of the man with one talent. Master says in verse 29, he is one who has not. Meaning he doesn't have anything. To begin with, the man with one talent had no talents. What does Jesus say then in the rest of verse 29? Even what he has, that is, what was given to him in the first place, will be taken back away, and the servant will be cast into outer darkness. The point being is that if you're breathing today, no matter if you're a Christian, that is God's grace. That is a gift. You've been given that from God What are you going to do with life? That decides if you will be given more eternal life or cast out into where? Out of darkness. This takes us back to where we're at in our text today. As Jesus hangs up on the cross, darkness falls across the land. Darkness, judgment, outer darkness. And what Jesus says next confirms for us our suspicions and our estimated guesses as to what this darkness might imply. Jesus says, and at the ninth hour, so after three hours of darkness, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus declares that he is forsaken by God. The final abandonment. He is utterly alone. His disciples have left him. A few, more than Judas, we might say even Peter betrayed him by denying him. If you want to put it in contemporary terms, his church, if I can use that word to describe the relationship Jesus professionally has with the Jewish establishment, his church murdered him. People he doesn't even know have sentenced him, and on the cross he cries out that God has forsaken him. This is a complex statement. And some of you, I know, keep it simple, stupid. (laughs) You're about to make this really a lot harder than it really is. But I truly fear we can do bad theology on this statement if we don't analyze it closely. 
First, I want to show you in the Bible where the covenant loving, I will never leave you nor forsake you, unconditionally consistent God is said to have forsook his people. Why am I doing this? To make you doubt your faith? No, I'm doing this because it's in the Bible. <laughs> and if you believe in the Bible, then I by all means believe what it says. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses is delivering the law to the Israelites, and it's rather obvious and straightforward. Chapter 28 starts off with a promise of blessings for Israel to be obedient. If you obey me, you will be blessed. Kind of like when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. But I would note here in the reasoning that Jesus is backing up even prior to obedience. Thought process of a true believer goes this way. Love, then obedience, then blessing. The chapter I'm referring to in, in Deuteronomy is just talking about the obedience part. Not what comes before it, namely, love. Now, in Deuteronomy, you can look. It talks about love a lot in there. I want to make that clear. Does that make sense? I don't want you to walk away to do religious interpretation on here and equate obedience as a synonym of love. Obedience is a product of love. Products and synonym, two different things. Chapter 28 continues. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall, you be, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your room and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Then the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. Why do I bring this up? God curses, confounds, and frustrates all that Israel would do, and destroys and causes them to perish quickly. What is happening to Jesus? Jesus is being cursed and confounded and frustrated, and in a matter of six hours he is, he is dying on the cross, much shorter than most crucifixion victims. But he has not forsaken God, though God has forsaken him. Over in 2 Kings 21, we talk about a king named Manasseh, who is just all around an evil guy. He sheds innocent blood, he worships false gods, he forgets who God is. And God says it is because of him that the kingdom will fall into the hands of their captors. And we read in 2 Kings 21, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And listen to this very harsh. I will wipe away Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. 
God is saying that his covenant people are to become, for lack of better terms, not his covenant people. Why? Because like Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy, Obey me and be blessed. Don't obey me, be forsaken. And so they are forsaken. What has Jesus done? Nothing. What has God done to him? God forsook him. We continue, we fast forward, Judah is about to be invaded. We find the weeping prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is actually doing Moses all over again, but he's doing it at the brink of Israel's disobedience. It's no longer, if this happens, then this will happen thing. It's now more of a, it's happening, you're disobeying and wrath is coming. Jeremiah 7, 27 through 29, Jeremiah says, or God says to Jeremiah, So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished, it is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. The Lord has rejected and forsaken Israel. Can you get any clearer than that? Actually, yes, you can. Jeremiah says in chapter 12, God says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Do you see how the covenant-loving, unconditional, unchanging, promise-making, loyal God has indeed forsaken his house and abandoned his heritage and given the beloved of his soul into the hands of his enemies, and he therefore hates her? Strong, strong language. And don't hear me wrong, simply because I say strong language, and I'm not saying that God's speaking figuratively, symbolically, metaphorically, or less than what he actually means. He means what he says. He means what he says. So some of you are scratching your heads, squirreling around, (laughs) because this isn't what every pastor preaches. But lo and behold, in the Bible you love so dearly, full of promises and well wishes, here it says that God forsakes his people. That when he says he demands obedience, he demands obedience. That when he says he curses and wrath is in store for those who forsake him, that means curses and wrath are in store for those who forsake him. And that when his people push him, really push him, when his people keep burning the candle, God's whip runs out. And he declares through Jeremiah, I have forsaken them. I have abandoned them. I have given them over to their enemies. Look at that last verse. They dare mock me and roar at me like a lion in the forest. They dare lift their voices against me, trying to intimidate me, boss me around, tell me what to do. I hate her. That's what God says in his word. What has Jesus done that God might forsake him? Nothing. What has God Jesus become? Jesus has become Israel. Jesus has become Israel. He says, I am the true vine. The vine throughout all of Scripture being Israel. And so he says he is true Israel. And lo and behold, God's promises haven't failed. Lo and behold, everything that God has said from his promises of blessing to his curses and forsakenness are still in place. 
But at the cross, Jesus, who is Israel, is being forsaken, being abandoned. And so at that moment on the cross, Jesus becomes everything God hates. Listen to me, friends. Jesus becomes everything God hates. Jesus becomes the whore that God has railed against in the Old Testament. Jesus becomes the murderer Barabbas. Jesus is forsaken because God declared that he has forsaken him. Jesus is abandoned by God. And so Jesus cries out. He cries out in desperation and truth, emotional distraught, and more meanings than one. My God, my God. And note there, my friends, the steadfastness, the resoluteness, the trust, and the unwavering faith that Jesus has in God. He doesn't just say God. He doesn't say Yahweh. He doesn't say Heavenly Father. He says, my God. My God. When Jesus becomes all things gross, all things nasty, all things despicable, all things horrible, all things offensive and pungent to God, when Jesus becomes accursed, unclean, and unholy and forsaken because he has become sin, he cries out still, you are my God. My God, and he cries out, longing for the communion with him. Why have you forsaken me? Not because he doesn't know why, but because he's only ever been with God. Jesus and the Father are one. And because of Israel's disobedience, because of my disobedience, because of your disobedience, because of sin and injustice and evil and corruption, and because of no fault of his own or God's own, God the Father must do the unthinkable and the most grievous and sacrifice his Son. And God the Son must, on account of not his own, must sever the bond between he and Father. But Jesus is still faithful, trusting in what is undeniably the biggest test that anyone would ever face, would ever face. I've told you this story several times. It's August 2015. The fire is raging. The wind is howling down the road from my house, less than a mile near Woodland Road. The fire is going. Over in, by the McIntyres, the fire is going. I'm in my bedroom on the carpet, face down, tears coming down my face. I say, dear God, please send rain and protect the firefighters. And at that moment, the power goes out. <laughs> A test of faith. Where is God in this? Does that mean that I doubt God? Does that mean that I deny God or that God is not looking at me or that God is not seeing woodland in these moments? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Jesus is abandoned by everyone, is murdered unjustly, knows exactly why he's doing it, but he screams out from the outer darkness, from the pits of hell itself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that mean Jesus denies God, doubts God, or feels that God is no longer looking at him or seeing what has taken place? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, we read it last week. What does it say? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush who? To crush Jesus. It was God's will to do that. Why was it his will? Because God is an angry, bloodthirsty God who crushes his son for the fun of it? No. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's why God crushed him. 
Jesus has become Israel, God's people, to make an offering for guilt, your guilt, my guilt, all of the sins. But what is next is so interesting in conjunction with Jesus' cry of being abandoned. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah says, in immediacy and relevancy to this very moment that we are studying, namely Christ on the cross, God shall see his offspring. Say, he shall see his offspring with me. He shall see his offspring. God sees Jesus at the cross in these very moments. And Isaiah will explain that in detail in a few lines. He, that is God, shall prolong his days. Jesus is going to resurrect. His days will be prolonged. He's not dead at the cross. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul. Whose soul? God's soul. Heard a teaching a while back that struck and moved me. When we cover the story of the Passion, the story of Jesus, we have a tendency to focus primarily, if not always, on Jesus, the Son, which is true. Rightly so. We're we're Christians. We're focused on Christ. So we love Jesus. But, but, read lots of verses about the cross like this one. We note that God the Father is anguished. Jesus is not the only one in anguish here at the cross. Jesus is not the only one emotionally exhausted saying things like, Why have you forsaken me? Out of the anguish of his soul, God's soul, it anguished God the Father to put his son to death. Read Genesis 22 later. There's another double dog there. Read Genesis 22 and think about Abraham presenting Isaac for a sacrifice. And fathers, if you can't put yourself in God's position, put yourself in Abraham's position. That is what God is going through. But as God turned his face away, has God let Jesus out of his sight, out of the anguish of his soul, God shall see and be satisfied. God the Father sees Jesus. God has not abandoned him. Jesus is forsaken because he is Israel in sin, but he is still loved because he is God's son. Now, that may not make complete sense to our three-pound fallen brains, but it just is what it is. God sees and is satisfied. Why is he satisfied? We read, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That is the satisfaction. God's not looking at the sacrifice of Jesus. He's saying, All that nastiness satisfies me. No. Our sins are paid for. Justice is done. Our iniquities have been borne by Christ on the cross. Did Jesus, did God forsake Jesus at the cross? Yes, he had to. Jesus was ugly. He bore the entire sins of the world. Did God leave Jesus at the cross? He saw Jesus on the cross and was satisfied. Justice was paid. Many are counted righteous at the cross because of Jesus. One more thing about this and then we're done. Some of you might be thinking, if Jesus says, My God, why have you forsaken me? And I just showed you, and I think it's plain enough in Isaiah 53, that God may have in some way forsook Jesus, but he surely did not blind himself to what was happening at the cross, since the whole point of Christ's death on the cross was to satisfy God's wrath due to us. And furthermore, you might be thinking, was Jesus lying then? If he knew what was going to happen, if he knew everything leading up to that moment, why does he cry out in anguish, even if he knows that he will rise again? 
Jesus is teaching us, even with his final breaths. He's setting an example, even in the very act of his horrible, unjust death, in the middle of this horrific moment where God's wrath meets God's love. Jesus is teaching us. How is he teaching us? In the middle of his anguish, he cries perhaps a true question, but it is the start of a psalm that we read last week. Jesus cries out, Psalm 22. And if you haven't read it in its entirety, do so later. There's a triple dog there. Be amazed at how David, hundreds of years prior to Jesus' death, so accurately described the sin of the cross. Almost as if he were divinely inspired. Because he was. Jesus is allowing God's word to express his feelings. Because Jesus is the word of God. He is immersed in his messianic calling because he is the Messiah. And so Jesus cries out Psalm 22, the beginning of verse 1, which completely begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And we would read on and find, well, most perfectly describes the feelings of Jesus in the scene at the cross. But if we read all the way to the end, we find why also that Jesus is saying this with complete trust and assurance that Jesus can cry out, My God, my God, because at the end of Psalm 22 is a glorious, triumphal praise. As we go into prayer, I invite you to close your eyes and hear the end of Psalm 22 today. So go ahead and close your eyes. At the end of Psalm 22, it says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down into the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Heavenly Father, you have done it through Jesus. Not only are you remembered in posterity, but you reign in reality. Because you are alive. That it did not end here at the cross. You said it was finished, and that's because the price for our sins are finished. We heard in this psalm that all people shall bow before him. Father, all people will bow before you in humility or humiliation. I pray that it will be in humility. Father, there are hard hearts here today. Would you wreck them with this truth? I earnestly desire to see all people be saved by your son, Jesus. My fear that some will leave unchanged, haughty, prideful. Father, would you give them the grace to leave in humility? 
Would you give them the grace to accept your son Jesus for your sins? And Father, for those of us who do know you and love you, we thank you for drawing us ever deeper and closer into what was accomplished at the cross so that we may love you and savor you more and praise you more. Father, we ask and we pray all these things in the name, power, and work, and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.